a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going well, Natalie. Um, It's been a pretty eventful first week of arguments for the November session. We had, you know, a a big abortion, uh, two big abortion cases that were heard on Monday, and just yesterday on Wednesday, we heard a major gun rights case, the biggest in over a decade. And so now we're still kind of just processing everything that we've heard at the court. There's been no big decisions to come out yet. I know we were kind of wondering how quickly the court would act in those two abortion cases so far. Nothing, but do you want to just get into it and kind of catch listeners up of of what they might have missed? Yeah. So as we kind of mentioned in our last episode, Monday, the court heard arguments in a pair of cases dealing with Texas's SB8. It's a law that essentially delegates enforcement of their ban on abortions after six weeks to private parties. Uh, Jimmy, you cover the arguments. I think it was quite apt that you highlighted uh, Kagan's quote about basically this being a procedural morass. (laughs) Uh, Can you kind of give us some of the big takeaways of how arguments went and any highlights? So, yeah, I mean, there was a lot to unpack. It was roughly three hours of oral arguments across the two cases. Just to kind of briefly recap our listeners, one case, the first one, Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, is being brought by abortion providers who are challenging the law. The second one was from the federal government. And I would say when the dust finally settled on the oral arguments, it seemed like the the key, you know, middle ground votes in the case that are going to decide um, whether the law stands or not, seem to be a little bit sympathetic to the abortion providers' arguments in challenging the law. And that's just generally because of the way it is written. We've talked about it you know, last week at length about how this law um, really makes it hard to challenge because of the way it's written in outsourcing the enforcement efforts um, to private citizens because typically... In constitutional litigation, when litigants challenge a state law as unconstitutional, they name the state regulators, the state executive officials that are in charge of enforcing the law. And in this case, because they are not in charge of enforcing the law, uh, the abortion providers were kind of forced to rewrite their challenge and name the state court clerks and judges, the court officials that are hearing these cases, as the defendants, it gets into this procedural morass that Justice Kagan was talking about. But I don't want to suggest that Justice Kagan was somehow sympathetic to Texas's position in the case. Quite the opposite, in fact. She basically accuses Texas of having gamed the system, gamed the Supreme Court's own doctrine in order to shield what is in the eyes of the providers and what is, in effect, actually, um, in violation of the current Supreme Court doctrine on abortion, which protects a woman's rights to obtain an abortion before a fetus is viable. And so here's Justice Kagan questioning the Solicitor General from Texas about what the state has done in this case. General Stone, I think what Justice Breyer is suggesting is that the entire point of this law, its purpose and its effect, is to find the chink in the armor 
of Ex parte Young, that Ex parte Young set out a basic principle of how our government is supposed to work and how people can seek review of unconstitutional state laws. And the fact that after, oh, these many years, some geniuses came up with a way to evade the commands of that decision as well as the command that the broader, even the even broader principle that states are not to nullify federal constitutional rights and to say, oh, we've never seen this before, so we can't do anything about it. Um, I, I guess I just don't understand the argument. Then let me just try and quickly synthesize why this is a bit complicated. So I talked a bit about how constitutional litigation generally works. You name the state uh, executive officials who are in charge of enforcing law. That's because of a really, really old Supreme Court decision. It's called Ex parte Young. It was decided in 1908. And I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here, but it is absolutely <laughs> critical to understanding this particular case. Now, Ex parte Young says that that's how you should do it. You sue the state officials because obviously you can't sue the state. State has sovereign immunity. So you sue the state officials. But what Ex parte Young also says is that it would basically render the whole constitutional system unworkable if um, federal court judges were able to enjoin state court judges. Now, that seems to kind of be what Texas has sought to take advantage of in this particular case, because remember, the litigants have no other choice but to sue these state court officials because of this command that Ex parte Young says in that you can't actually enjoin these officials. So Texas basically has argued that they can't get relief in the federal courts at all because of this 100-year-old-plus doctrine. Now, this is the absolute core of the case because, like I said, it's going to come down to these few justices and you have the letter of, you know, the Ex parte Young decision itself and then you have what kind of Justice Brett Kavanaugh kind of alluded to as maybe a, a loophole that Texas was exploiting in the case under the court's current doctrine. And he has a quote here that I just want to, a, a quick clip that I just want to play, where he really puts Texas's feet to the fire and says, you know, this seems to be like it's taking advantage of a loophole, and maybe we should just close that loophole. So ex parte Young sets out this principle that you can get pre-enforcement review in federal court against state enforcement of laws that are assertedly unconstitutional. And 999 times out of 1,000, or maybe every time until this uh, case, that's a state executive official. It's a pro forma exercise, usually, to identify the state executive official. And Justice Kagan points out there's a loophole that's been exploited here uh, or used here, which is the um, private suits are enforced by state court clerks or judges. So the question becomes, should we extend the principle of ex parte young to, in essence, close that loophole? In other words... So, Natalie, I don't know. Do you agree with Justice Kagan? This is, this is kind of a procedural morass here, even if it does involve the very explosive issue of abortion. I, I think the, the term procedural morass is, is being kind to, to, <laughs> to this case in some ways. Um, it's, it's, this is a very tricky one, right? Just in terms of how it's legally structured and, as you mentioned, kind of the parameters the courts have on themselves, basically, to decide this case. I mean, do you dare to venture to hypothesize about, like, where the justices might go here? 
So it seemed like between Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, that on balance, after you know the hours of oral arguments, at least in the case of the providers, less to a lesser extent in the case of the federal government, they seem to be sympathetic. That that Texas has created this kind of workaround. And, and remember, the reason it's a procedural morass is because Texas has created in, on purpose, intentionally. It's the stated concession. It's the stated admission of of Texas that. They wanted to structure their law so that it would be hard to challenge in federal court, and it is. And so the question now facing Kavanaugh and Barrett, who are the the median swing justices on the court that could decide whether this law stands, is whether they aren't going to countenance this kind of strategic move by Texas to shield judicial review. And it, it kind of seemed like from the, the clip that I just played from from Kavanaugh that he's not really interested in vindicating Texas's efforts here and that he may try and cobble together a way to say that, no, you can't just use loopholes in order to shield the law from judicial review. Now, um, when this decision or what it's going to say comes out, we don't know. It is being, obviously, it was heard on an expedited basis. The court actually set it for oral arguments just 10 days before the hearing. Um, so theoretically, they're trying to come up with a ruling quickly. But I don't know, Natalie, I, do you envy their task in like putting together some kind of coherent rationale for how this thing is going to play out? I absolutely do not. Um, you know, <laughs> after after the oral arguments, I, th- I think as expedited as this is going to be, it's it's going to take them a little bit to wrangle with all with all of, you know, the arguments and, and kind of where to, to head. So I don't expect this one like tomorrow i might be wrong <laughs> um but we'll we'll see how long it takes for them and and you know and and keep in mind like they're also you know looking ahead to another blockbuster abortion case on on the docket in early december and i don't know you know quite how those two cases will will kind of play off each other you know when it comes to the the justices and and trying to work out these opinions in these rulings that's right. On December 1st, the court's going to hear Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And that doesn't involve the procedural issues underlying Texas's six-week abortion ban. That involves an actual challenge to Roe versus Wade itself. And in that case, uh, the court's considering whether they should get rid of Roe versus Wade's protections for pre-viability abortions. So even if they say that these abortion providers can sue over this six-week abortion ban, there might not be an underlying claim here under Roe versus Wade by the end of the Supreme Court term if the court in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health overturns Roe versus Wade. So it's all very up in the air right now how these things are going to work out, how they're going to kind of interact. Um, so there's a lot of question marks around the whole issue of abortion this term. We're going to be covering it throughout, but I think it's it's best to just leave it aside for now because there's so many unanswered uh, questions and turn to kind of a more clear outcome that we could see in the big uh, New York guns case. Um, well, that's that relatively more clear. Relatively okay, more relatively. clear, Jimmy. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the court on Wednesday heard New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, uh, arguably, and I think easily, the biggest gun rights case in more than a decade. Um Jimmy, again, you were front, uh, you were, you were, uh, you know, at the forefront here of covering the arguments. Uh, again, two hours set aside for this one. A big takeaway. You know, it's funny. You say two hours set aside. It's actually they actually it was an hour and a half. Seventy. Well, they set aside seventy minutes, but since the court has kind of 
done the pandemic thing where they give the justices time in order of seniority to ask questions. They've like never kept to the allotted time for the argument. So it was supposed to be a 70 minutes. You're right. It ended up being two hours. I mean, I don't know that it matters anyway, but it's it's safe to say that Chief Justice Roberts is like no longer a time stickler at all because all of the cases keep going long. In any, way, in any event, um, I digress. Yes, it was a two-hour hearing in the case New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin on Wednesday. It seemed after the hearing that there was a clear majority for the conservatives on the Supreme Court to strike down New York's century-old restrictions on public carrying of firearms. Um, this is going to be, if that is in fact how this case shakes out, it's going to be the biggest gun rights victory in you know over a decade since the 2008 decision in District of Columbia versus Heller, which obviously recognized an individual right to own a firearm. Now, lower courts had been kind of been reading the Heller decision as only applying inside the home. And so this decision, if this New York law is struck down, it would likely be the first time that the Supreme Court has explicitly held that Second Amendment rights apply outside the home as well. That would be a watershed ruling. Yeah, you're right. And it certainly, like you said, it seems to not be going in New York's favor. Uh, But as we'll hopefully talk about a little bit later, I think there's lots of different ways the court could you know, approach this essentially, and that's a big question. But but first, let's let's talk about the background of the case. Uh, can you can you break down just kind of like how we got here? Sure. So the, the case comes from two New York residents, Robert Nash and Brandon Koch. Uh, they're actually being supported by an NRA affiliated group, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. But basically, they're they're mounting a constitutional challenge to the state's, like I said, century old law that restricts carry licenses to only those who can show, quote, proper cause. Now, the law itself doesn't define the term proper cause, but it's been interpreted to kind of impose a requirement that applicants must show that there's some kind of threat to their lives, that they're in danger. For instance, they frequently award these types of licenses to former judges or uh, or law enforcement officials, um, people who can show that they have some kind of ongoing threat against them. Now, most ordinary gun owners can't obviously meet this requirement. Um, And they say that, you know, although they both have hunting licenses, they want to obtain a license to carry their firearms publicly for self-defense reasons. And they say that uh, requiring them to show proper cause violates their rights under the Second Amendment. Now, they lost in in the... in the lower courts, obviously, and now they are appealing to the Supreme Court with help from a little-known attorney at the in the Supreme Court, Paul Clement. Just kidding. He's like obviously one of the, the, the more heavy hitters at the Supreme Court. He's a former Solicitor General who actually argued Heller itself um, under Bush in support of gun rights in that case. And he made his opening argument uh, on Wednesday to the Supreme Court. And here's what he had to say. The text of the Second Amendment enshrines a right not just to keep arms, but to bear them. And the relevant history and tradition, exhaustively surveyed by this Court in the Heller decision, confirm that the text protects an individual right to carry firearms outside the home for purposes of self-defense. So how receptive did the justice seem to be to, to, to Clement's arguments? You know, it's funny. When I went into this hearing, I thought I was going to hear a lot of debate about the, you know, the meaning of 
uh, the the original meaning of the Second Amendment in this kind of lengthy back and forth over what the historical documents and the historical record dating back all the way to you know the 14th century in England to today, what they show about the scope of the Second Amendment and whether it in fact protects you know, a right to bear arms outside the home. That's what I thought was going to be the subject of some debate. It really wasn't about that at all. And that's because I think that the court, at least the conservatives on the court, feel like that question was largely already decided in the Heller decision. They didn't want to re-litigate all the historical record when they've already done that in Heller in recognizing this individual right to self-protection by owning firearms. And so most of the questions really didn't kind of test whether that was even a subject of debate. A lot of their questions assumed that that was already the case. And so that's obviously very bad news for New York in the case. And it, like I said, at the at the, at the top of the show and at the top of the segment, that it seems like there's a, a clear conservative majority here. Um, the question really becomes, you know, just how broad this ruling actually is if it goes beyond and reaches into other um, state legislation and jeopardizes other existing gun control re- uh, regulations around the country. But just as an example of where the conservative justices are coming at this case from, I want to just play another clip. Here is a quote from Chief Justice John Roberts, who was, by the way, in the majority in the Heller decision, and he's questioning Principal Deputy Solicitor General Brian Fletcher, who, arguing for the government, is is supporting New York's law. And and Chief Justice Roberts, he compares the Second Amendment's rights to self-defense, as recognized in Heller, to, to other rights in the Bill of Rights, and asks, how do you square those two things? If you're asserting a claim to confront the witnesses against you under the Constitution, you don't have to say, I've got a special reason. This is why I think it's important to my, uh, my defense. The Constitution gives you that right, and if someone's going to take it away from you, they have to justify it. You don't have to say when you're looking for a permit uh, to speak on a street corner or whatever that, you know, your speech is particularly important. So why do you have to show in this case, convince somebody, that you're entitled to exercise your Second Amendment right? I think Roberts there very strongly kind of puts out the the, the stance from, the, you know, many of the conservatives on this issue. Um, I know a big part of the back and forth, though, really ended up being, you know, kind of special circumstances, right? And, and New York seems to be potentially rife <laughs> with some special circumstances as to where, you know, the city, the state might be allowed to restrict guns. Uh, can you kind of talk us through that part? A little bit. No, absolutely. I mean, this was basically the whole point of arguments from the perspective of the conservative justices. They seem like they are basically looking for some limiting principle here, even if they do strike down the New York gun law, because, you know, it's home to the to the most populous city in the country. Um, and so a number of questions from, you know, Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts, from Justice Amy Coney Barrett, even from Justice Elena Kagan, kind of went to, you know, where are the limits to this open carry right or this public carry right? For instance, Chief Justice Roberts wants to know if, um, you know, sports arenas and, and giant stadiums can legally exclude under the Constitution people from carrying firearms. And um, that goes to Kagan's question about whether 
the New York City could ban people from carrying firearms on the subway. And, and to a lot of these questions, Clement was fairly conciliatory. You know, he was not trying to make the argument that there was an absolute right to carry in any time um, of day or any place um, in the entire state. And I think the concerns here were, were pretty aptly summarized by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And she reading, she suggests that under her reading of the of the historical record that, you know, there's fairly broad support for these kind of restrictions on certain sensitive areas. If, if you concede, as I think the historical record requires you to, that states did um, outlaw guns in sensitive places, can't we just say Times Square on New Year's Eve is a sensitive place because now we've seen, you know, people are on top of each other. We've, we've had experience with violence. So we're making the judgment. It's a sensitive place. So that I would say kind of summarizes where the court is coming at this case from. Um, they are not trying to wreak havoc. And this kind of goes back to what the court actually wrote in the 2008 Heller decision itself, which is that you know, that decision was not to be construed as casting legal doubt on restrictions of firearms in certain sensitive places. I think the example they give in that decision is, for instance, like courthouses or things like that. But the principle remains, and I think that the court is trying to be cognizant and, and careful about that, that they're not trying to cast those regimes or those types of restrictions in jeopardy. But it does kind of raise the question of, you know, what does that look like? What does that test actually look like in a especially in a city like New York, where everybody, you know, I don't know, Natalie, you live in New York City, so you probably know more than anyone how crammed it can feel at times and and not wanting just, you know, someone on, on, on the subway at rush hour, you know, packing like some seriously deadly weapon, right? Yeah, no, agreed. And, you know, although Justice Alito, I think at, at one point slammed back at like that kind of exactly. example, because, you know, well, New York confiscates, um, you know, many illegal guns uh, every year. And, you know, he kind of made the point that, well, those illegal guns and their owners are on the subway and in these kind of sensitive places anyway. So, you know, why should they be, you know, allowed to legally carry it? But then, you know, someone who's law abiding isn't and, you know, then that's being infringed on their 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 right to, to carry you know, I, I personally, as a New Yorker, was quite taken by the the, the kind of a uh, chat about campus, university campuses, oh, right. New York uh, university. which was so funny because like there was a whole argument as does NYU have a campus? <laughs> and, you know, um, I was taken by that because I know the university I went to in the, in the city and a lot of the universities often like have this tagline that like the city's like our campus, right? right. Um, or, or 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 make kind of promote that aspect, you know. And and and, and you know, schools are considered, you know, it's in for Heller places, to be right? a sensitive place. So so you know, I think that's that's a an interesting issue to that the justices are going to have to mull over. I, I did feel like Clement kind of pushed back a little bit on um, sensitive places being kind of the, um, being perhaps too broad, right? And I think right. that's 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 a clear issue here. And, and, and I think, you know, when we're talking about how, the, where the justice might go, I think this is a place where they may be, you know, invited or, or feel compelled to sharpen what the guidelines are for like right. sensitive places or for a test as to where, um, you know, 
the the court can where where states can be restricted um you know from from kind of these kind of broad bands because i i think clement raised the, the point that like you know yes new york city is a very unique place but he also did not seem to want to have a circumstance where the state could basically deem all of manhattan as a sensitive place right 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 and 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 that's something that it wasn't just Clement that wanted to avoid that result. It seemed like the, the justices themselves, they didn't want to just draw a circle around big cities and say, oh, because there's a lot of people here, you know, you can't carry firearms. And in fact, it was it was Chief Justice Roberts that's basically saying like, you know, for instance, take the example of like a high crime, densely populated area. You know, Chief Justice Roberts says that's kind of like where you need more self-defense rights is in those areas, not out in the woods, he says. You're not, you know, how how many muggings take place in the forest, I think was a quote <laughs> that he actually gave. And so they're struggling to balance these interests in determining which, you know, areas of the public that people can go to should be off limits for for public carrying of firearms. And, you know, I like I said, um, New York City is one of those really unique places that that makes that question even more difficult um, just because of the the unique nature of how densely populated it is. Um, and then there's the question of how, how what the court writes will apply to other states with other regimes, basically. And, and gun control advocates say that there's at least six other states that have laws in the books that could be vulnerable to legal challenges under the Second Amendment if, in fact, this New York law is struck down. And I think... No matter what happens, we'll probably see that litigation continue to play out. Um, but uh, I think probably just to, to summarize what was a really fascinating hearing is to say that it's it's pretty much up to the middle ground of the court, what is now the middle ground of the court in, in Roberts and in Kavanaugh and in Barrett to kind of do what you just said, which is to clarify and sharpen those guidelines around where the right applies. But I think that a decision will inevitably establish explicitly for the first time that that right exists. Definitely, you know, this is one that we'll be keeping our eye on um, and hopefully breaking down when that decision comes down. Uh, Jimmy, as always, this has been wonderful conversation and uh, fascinating. We will be back next week with another round of arguments to uh, break down. Great. Thanks, Natalie, for chatting today. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.